have been in the book of Matthew. We've been looking at this idea of apprenticing with, with Jesus. And we worked through the Sermon on the Mount. And it got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And you had this, this just feeling amongst the crowds of people that were sitting there watching Jesus. And it says they were blown away because he spoke with such authority. Now that word authority probably has a lot more to do with the fact that when, when the other Jewish leaders would speak, they would quote the different rabbinic sources or the extra biblical stuff, and they would kind of lay that out there. But there was something about Jesus. When he quoted scripture and when he acknowledged it, he spoke as one that was different than the other teachers that were around at the time. And it's almost like the Sermon on the Mount demanded then an illustration of Jesus as the true Messiah. And let me just say this, as you study in your Bibles, whenever you study God's word, if something kind of comes up a lot throughout what you're studying, in this particular case, you cannot leave the book of, of Matthew and wonder, hey, I wonder if it was a big deal about this whole Messiah thing. Like Messiah just keeps ringing through this particular text over and over again. And even last week we got to, to verse 17. And he quotes Isaiah seven, or he quotes Isaiah the, the uh, fifty two through fifty three, specifically fifty three three, talking about this idea of Jesus taking our illnesses and our diseases, meaning that you will be able to identify that the Messiah is amongst you when these types of things happen. And all throughout the book of Matthew, as he's quoted both Isaiah, Jeremiah, the different prophets, as he's quoted them, he wants us to know that each one of those things may be isolated, might go, oh, this could be that person or that person. But because they're all pulled together, Matthew is saying the only one that can live up to all these prophetic realities of who the Messiah is to be is this person, Jesus. He truly is the Messiah. And last week we talked about this idea that when Messiah, when Jesus came in, you will know that the Messiah has showed up because one of the things is, is he steps in and entered into people's brokenness. We talked about how he entered into the, to the leper and the person with a fever and the paralytic. Jesus doesn't just sit back. He enters into brokenness. You will know that the Messiah is amongst you as he enters into brokenness. You'll see this, he will act with authority. And Jesus didn't just kind of act with authority. He spoke just like Genesis 1 and all the molecular reality inside of these people was readjusted. Why? We start to see this. He isn't just Messiah, he is God. He alleviated in people's lives the effects of the fall, all pointing toward this reality where he was about ready to not just alleviate. When he dies on the cross and he's raised from that tomb, he punishes and destroys the works of the evil one, even destroying Satan, it talks about in Colossians 2. He handles our sin through his sacrificial work upon the cross. And then in the final act, when he's raised from the grave, those of us that are followers of Jesus, the sting of death gets absolutely removed. In other words, you'll see the Messiah when he starts doing that. And this is what Matthew is saying. This is the Messiah. But also, he wasn't just even doing that. He was freeing people to fulfill the law. He was freeing people to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was freeing people to love other people. It's that Romans 13, 8 reality. You will know that the law is being accomplished, being fulfilled amongst you when you see this type of a radical love, and not just what we define as radical love, but true, authentic, biblical love, walking in just the truth of God's word, you will know it. And when Jesus entered, you saw the Messiah. 
And that's what Matthew's trying to argue and make sure people get. You cannot, you must acknowledge, let me say it this way, you must acknowledge that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a kind of cool guy that kind of came onto the scene. Jesus is Messiah. And let me just say something to those of you that may not know Jesus or kind of trying to figure out Jesus. Oftentimes we kind of discard him because we're not sure what to do with him, but his life was a testimony that you can't just discard Jesus. He's either who he said he was or he isn't. And let me say this, countless witnesses and testimonies say he wasn't just anybody. He is the son of God, the true Messiah, the one that has come to right this world and to shift and mold it into the intent for which God created it. And he is calling all people by faith to bend their knee. And my hope is at the end of this message that those of you that don't know Jesus, my hope is that you would bend the knee to this good king. Now, saying all that, we also see how people respond to him. Like I love last week with all three scenarios, well, specifically two scenarios, they responded with such confidence, not self-confidence, right? They didn't pat themselves on the back in any way. They came to Jesus with such confidence because they realized he can actually do what he says. He is the Messiah. If he's really him, and if we're supposed to look for this, then he can do it. I'm going to have confidence in him. But it wasn't this blatant, arrogant confidence. No, they came with such reverence. They came with this sense of using the word Lord and there was this bowing before him, this understanding of, and we talked about this at that time, this idea of one who we are acknowledging is deity. But they also came with humility. I love that statement, what he says in there, if you are willing. Lord, you don't have to, but if you're willing, would you? And I love it in that statement, talk about authority. Jesus just says, I'm willing. And the last one is faith, this coming to Jesus, not just with an assent. Oh, you know, I love the things you're doing, and so I want to get on the goodies. No, it was coming to him by faith. It's a James 2 reality. Faith without works is what? Dead. It's coming to him with action and realizing this actionable faith. We're coming to him as the only one that can deal with this. But the other thing that we talked about that's really important is we talked about this idea of crowds. Again, if you read the book of Matthew and you don't see the word crowds, you are missing Matthew. 46 times this word crowds comes up. It's a, Matthew just keeps throwing it in front of people. And last week we talked about there were two distinct groups of people. Now this crowd, we'll see on one end, were the deniers. If you remember right, like we get through 8, 9, 10, 11, and by the time we get to chapter 12, the way that these people actually think Jesus is, is that, oh, he's doing the works, he's doing this through the work of Beelzebul, Satan. That's how one group sees it. I've always been fascinated within the Bible that different groups see different things, and one group responds that way, but then there's another group that comes to him as a true acceptor. In Matthew 16, right, Jesus gets done doing everything, right? And he, he sits down with the boys and he looks at him. Hey, who do people say that I am, you know? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, other Jeremiah. And then he looked at them and said, but who do you say I am? And I love it, man. Peter, Peter's my boy. Man, he just says things. I mean, he's got some flaws, right? We know he's got some flaws, but I appreciate him. But he says, you are the Christ. You are. And here's the point of all of Matthew. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited one. You are the son of the living God. 
But what I want to do today is I want to talk about a third group. Because I do think there's a third group in there that's important for us to understand in this whole crowd thing. And I didn't know what to call this one. And it's not kind of cool, but it's the best I could come up with. So don't, don't make fun of me later when you're going home and critiquing how terrible it was that I preached today. But it's this word, Fairweather fans. Now I say it this way, I can't stand people that are bandwagon. If you are bandwagon, we're never going to be friends. I just want you to know that. I have been a Pittsburgh Steelers fan since 1978. Yes. That was the first time I asked Terry Bradshaw into my heart. It was, no, no. I've been a Boston Bruins fan my whole life. I've been a New York Mets fan. And let me tell you something, to be a Mets fan, you have to be loyal, right? It's cake to be a Dodgers fan, my gosh. I'm a Philadelphia 76ers fan. But in this, the thing about Fairweather fans is that they come and they what? And generally they want to be around things when things are going what? Good. That's a Fairweather fan. So you'll see this from one standpoint, right? In Matthew 13 is we, we hear about the, 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 this, this guy who comes along and he's telling a parable about throwing seed out there. And he's throwing seed, and as he throws seed, some of it lands on the road, and it says birds come and snatch it up. Some of it lands in fertile soil. But then he talks about these two soils, one that's weedy soil and the other one that is this shallow soil. The one that lands by the road, the birds come and snatch it away, which is a representation of Satan coming and stealing away the word. And the other one lands on soil that produces 160 and 30 times. In other words, something crazy happens. But in the middle of it are two other seeds. One in the shallow soil that springs up and it looks so good. But it says in there now, as the heat begins to come down upon it, it withers because it doesn't have root into that way in which it can flourish like the good soil. And the other one springs up and it looks all kinds of good, but then at the end of it, the weeds grow up around it and it says it chokes it out. See, I think there's a lot of times we'll see this, even in people that I've watched that, that claim to follow Jesus, man, they spring up and everything looks good. But when it falls apart, it falls apart hard. And here's where I would say it. And this is what Jesus is going to do with these Fairweather fans. He's going to call them to count the cost. Now, I think he's calling the deniers to count the cost. I think he's calling the acceptors to count the cost. I think he's always calling all of us in different ways and in different forms to count the cost. But in this particular case, he's talking to a group of people where they love the fact that Jesus is coming in and out of nowhere, man, bread is coming. And he even has to look at a group of them and say, I know why you're coming to me. You're coming to me because you think I'm just going to give you a little bit of bread. Another group, right, they tell us to them, they're coming to him for healing, you know, and he's like, you don't want to just come to me. You're coming to me just because I can heal. You don't really care about me. You just want me to heal you. And then there's all kinds of people around there that are longing for Messiah to come back. And what's so fascinating in Luke 9, right before we come to this parable, Jesus says, set his face to Jerusalem, meaning he knew exactly where he was going to be going as the suffering servant that we talked about last week in, in verse 17. He was setting his face for Jerusalem and he was going and that's where he was calling people to follow him. Meaning, you want maybe what's good at the end, but the suffering servant must first come and he must suffer before there's the reward that's to come. 
Now, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about this idea of what does it mean to count the cost. That's what we're going to be going through today. And we're going to look at it from a couple different vantage points, but trying really hard to, to, to understand that when Jesus would throw this out there, what he was doing is he was just being honest with people. I love that about Jesus. He was always honest. He would talk about the reward. He talked about the reward all the time, but he wasn't also afraid to say, this, is going to be an, this isn't going to be an easy road. It's going to be narrow. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult, but it's worth it. Follow me. Now, the first one that I think he's going to go after is this idea of comfort. Now, look down in chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles open, Matthew 8, and look at verse 19. That's where he's going to be first. Matthew 8, and look at verse 19. Now, this idea of comfort that he's going to kind of talk about a little bit is tied up around this guy who's a scribe. Now, anytime we see the word scribe in Matthew, it's not positive. Generally, they're connected with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, you know, they can't, right? what's this thing? Sadducees are Sadducee. What's wrong with Pharisees? They're not fair, you see. Yes, thank you. Yes. Neither were the scribes. But there's other something that's going on here that's pretty fascinating as well. He doesn't call him Lord like everyone else. Look what he calls him. He calls him teacher. Now with this, what we can start to tell is that number one, academia, the, the study of the scriptures is very important to him. Number two, we also find out that what's also important to him is to call somebody a teacher, rabbi. But probably of the three people we're going to look at, it probably also signifies he's the least committed to Jesus of any of them. Now, in this particular scenario, if you look back into verse 18, Jesus has told the boys that are with him and the gals, he's like, look, we need to go to the other side of it. So along goes Jesus, and they're heading down to the lake. And here's what you have to imagine is as he's heading down to the lake, all of a sudden this scribe, you know, comes up to him. Sorry, I can't really run right now. But he comes up to him. And he looks at him and he's going to ask him this question. And look what he does here. This is what he's going to go after. Teacher, he says to him, well, what? I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I just think at this moment, he's like just thinking, hey, dude, he's just going to go to the other side of the lake. Dude, I'll go with you to the other side of the lake. This will be awesome. I like riding in boats. Let's go. But let me reverse back. Luke 9, Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem. And what Jesus, in essence, is going to say, you don't want to go where I'm going. Now, what's so interesting is, is that Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, he knew what was inside of them. It says now, watch how he deals with it. What's this man's obstacle? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Look at this. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now here's the big thing I think he's going after. When he's talking about this, he's talking about home. He's letting him know that if you're going to follow me, I'm an itinerant preacher. I'm going from town to town. Sure, my, my home base is Capernaum, but I have no place, he says, in there to lay my head. Do you want to come with me? 
Now what's so fascinating is he's going to ask each of these people a different question, meaning if Jesus were to walk up to you right now, he probably may not answer this question because to be honest with you, my home, you can take it or leave it. It's a simple little thing. If suddenly I lost it and we had to live somewhere else in a different place, we had to even become itinerant, the home for me is not a big thing, but the home for my wife is a big thing. And I don't know what it is, but she uses this word all the time, I'm just trying to nest. And that's why she brings in twigs and different things into our house. It's really strange. It's really strange. But it's home. Now, again, you might, not, you might be sitting there like me going, oh, this is no big deal. But this is what I love about Jesus. He's personal. He looks at this particular one that struggles through it and he says, I want to talk to you about this. In fact, even in that, he calls him in this the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a reference probably to Daniel 7 of the eventual conquering one who's going to come and overthrow all things and establish the kingdom. But the Son of Man also has this idea kind of very similar to the, the idea around Isaiah 52 and 53, which is this idea of a suffering one. Meaning the Son of Man first comes and lives in amongst these people that suffers, walks through all kinds of difficulty, but eventually conquers. And I think in this particular context, he's saying, really, do you want to come with me? Because the first step of my role is not going to be to conquer and to overtake things, the first aspect of my role in order to establish my kingdom is to suffer. Do you want to come? Are you willing to give up your home? Now, somebody might go, well, Jesus, you know, you never had a home. What's your home? Oh, no big deal. My home is in the right hand of the Father. Well, angels scream all the time how holy, holy, holy I am. I left home. Will you? See, that's the question. Will you? Now, I think he's going after something that's so important. See, in the old covenant, to, to be under the, under the old covenant, it was a curse to be uprooted from your home. You would know there was something wrong if you were uprooted from your home and you were taken to another land. There was a curse going on at this particular point. And I do think Jesus was modeling again, I will enter into the curse of this people, not just to now be in amongst them, but to defeat the curse. But what was going on inside of their mind? Well, I think this is one. I think there's this idea of home. It just, it just settles us, doesn't it? It's what my wife talks about. We want to nest it. We want to make it right. She's been gone for a week, and I know the one thing that's very important when she walks through the door is the kitchen is clean. And so I have been absolutely just looking at my son on a regular basis saying, the kitchen will remain clean, understood soldier. He doesn't know what to do with that. But it's not just that. It's familiarity. Like people always say, you know, come over to their house. Hey, you know, mi casa, su casa. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Because right now, if I took off my shoes and my pants, you would be highly uncomfortable, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> let's be real honest. Identity. Man, just did a remodel of my house. I look around, I'm like, I did that. My fingerprints and blood are all over this home. And I think there's another side of independence. This one's mine. Now, what's Jesus doing here? 
I think he's going after this idea of our first love. I think it's going after this idea where Jesus is going to say to this group of people, I will not settle for being loved second or third or fourth. I won't. It's what he talked about to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. You've forsaken your first love. It's the command. You will have no other gods before you. I will be preeminent and I will not settle for less. I am the Messiah, the long-awaited one. I am the one that's coming to fulfill all. I won't take second place to a house. But I think there's something else going on here that's so important as well. It's not just that he will not settle for being second or third or fourth in this. See, when we get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, God is talking to a group of people and he can't believe they've forsaken him as God in the midst of all these different gods. And he comes along and he says to them this statement, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Are you kidding me? I've given you this. I have provided for you. What is he talking about? Well, C.S. Lewis, I think, does this really well, Mere Christianity. If you've never read Mere Christianity before, highly encourage it. But he says in this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world. I like that. Because not only will Jesus refuse to be second or third in love, but he won't let us settle for settling. He's like, no, 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 I'm the founder of living water. In fact, what you do is now you've just made these cisterns, these cisterns that can hold no water. You've built them up for yourselves. No, I am the fount of living water. Don't settle for that when you have me. Back to C.S. Lewis, he wrote in there, our desires, I love that, are not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant to be meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, I love this. I oftentimes have to do this with my kiddos, right? Like, I remember when my son was little at one point, he, he found a nickel. And um, so just for fun, I decided I had a $1 bill, and I just go, hey, man, I'll trade you. And he goes, no. I go, no, dude, it's, it's, a, it's a $1 bill, man. He goes, yeah, but it's paper. <laughs> and he couldn't comprehend in his mind that there were 20 nickels inside of this $1 But I think even in our little thinking, we forget God is, again, way beyond a dollar and a nickel, offering us anything beyond what we can do. And I think deep within us, we're trying to build a home, and we're building a home that we think is meant for eternality, and it's not. And Jesus is looking at people, and he's saying, no, don't long for the temporal home. I'm offering you the forever home. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you also will be. Don't settle. That's where he's at with this guy. Now, we don't know what happened with him. The Bible never tells us. But then there's a second person that comes along. And in this second person, the cost of following Jesus, and I didn't know another word, and I tried to keep, I've never done the alliteration thing well, but, you know, we got comfort and then we got coin, all right? So I'm going to try to do it well. But in it, what were this guy's obstacles? 
Well, in this case, another of the disciples, this is what's key, comes to him. And in this case, doesn't call him teacher. He calls him Lord, but there's a big problem. Jesus has to say, follow me. He's really not yet that committed. He's still a Fairweather fan. And what was it that was his obstacle? He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my dad. Father, sorry. Now, what's going on there? Like, on some levels, just like, hey, you know what? My dad just died. I got to go bury him. I got to take care of my mom. I need to, you know, follow the fifth command. You got to honor your parents. So I'm, I'm going to do that right now, Jesus. Is Jesus in this particular context going, nope, sorry, no honoring parents? Well, that just doesn't make sense to me because that doesn't fulfill the law. Another thought about this is, is that that particular time, especially from about, right about, about 40 BC on into about the mid second or third century, is that because things were getting so tight, when a person would die, they would kind of put them in there, let them decay away, you know, just what you wanted to hear this morning. They would collect up the bones and they would put them in what was called an ossuary, but they wouldn't put them in there for one year. So was he kind of saying, hey, I got to wait for the whole body to decompose thing, Jesus, and so I'm going to take you eventually, and once I put the bones in, then I'll follow you. But I don't even think that's it. See, the other way in which this statement can be made is this idea of, hey, Jesus, I'll come after you, but first let me get my inheritance. Soon as my pops dies, well, then I'll have my inheritance, I'll be stable, I'll be secure, I will be a great disciple. But how does Jesus feel about inheritance? One of the funny things is, is there's a, in Luke 12, we find this, a person comes up to him and he says this, teacher, and I love this, tell my brother, I mean, I feel like I'm at home with my kids, tell my brother to define the, divide the inheritance with me. Jesus' statement, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? I wish I could say that to my kids as they fight. Kids, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? You know, but they don't go for that. And then he tells them this particular parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones. There I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, stable, secure. Yes, life is good. To which Jesus says, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and who is not rich to God. Jesus is like, what? You're going to collect your inheritance first? Again, Jesus is saying, I won't be your second love. In fact, he says this statement, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I think a different way of reading this, and I don't have time to bring it out, but it's follow me and let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. The idea is almost like vultures circling the corpse. I've seen this so often at funerals where I'd be, I'd be sitting out in a waiting room at a hospital and they're talking about dad or mom about ready to die and they're talking about what they're going to inherit. I guess that's more of a blackbird. Whatever it is, right? So I don't even know what a vulture sounds like. Ah, whatever. Right? 
circling, just waiting for the sucker to die. That seems to be more the thing. You're in just this flyby pattern, waiting for dad to die. And then you'll pounce down on good old dad who had the audacity to storm everything. Now again, it's not as if inheritance is wrong. It's not even as if homes are wrong. It's that just like money, we must not make it our primary love. What do I think he's going after? I think in one scenario, he's just waiting for his inheritance. I think there's security in that, stability, circling vultures. But what are they longing for? Well, as the first group is longing for that forever home, I think to point us back into the Sermon on the Mount that we are longing for a forever treasure. We're longing for that time. And I was talking with my son about it this particular week. We were talking about like, what is new creation gonna be like? And one of the things that he kind of brought up was this idea. He goes, dad, what is it gonna look like when we're not stressed? And I was like, does daddy stress you? <laughs> I didn't wanna ask, cause I didn't wanna know. Don't ask, don't tell. But there's just this side of it where it was just like, what is it gonna be to suddenly be stable? What is it going to be like to suddenly be secure? Again, it comes back to see us, what at least C.S. Lewis said. It's we're longing for something different. And Jesus was saying to them, I won't be your second love, and I won't let you settle for settling. Which brings us to our last one, and I couldn't come up with another C. I almost did children, but it would go k k ch. Now it goes k k kin. You're welcome. I'm glad I was able to help you with that. Now, here's the next one. What's the obstacle? Well, to do this one, we're going to have to go to Luke 9. And Luke 9, actually, Luke adds a third person to this particular story. Now, in this particular story, in verse, excuse me, in verse, 20, in, in verse 61, we see this third person come up and he says to them, I will follow you, Lord. There just seems to be, this is the most committed one. He wasn't the teacher or scribe or the second person. It was just, Lord, I will follow you. What's the obstacle? Let me first say farewell to those at my home. I'm like, Jesus can't say no to this one. I'm just gonna go say goodbye to mom and dad. I'll be with you. I'll catch you, man. I'm running fast. But I think there's something bigger going on here. I think what's going on here that's very important to this is that to say goodbye, I don't think he's talking about his wife and kids because I think if I took off and I, for my wife and kids, again, that wouldn't fulfill the law. I think in many ways, he's talking about a mom and dad, he's talking about walking away from family, but to lose family, let me just say this, you lose a lot. There's many of you in here that you chose to follow Jesus. You walked away from maybe people that had a different religious background or different things. When you chose to follow Jesus, you lost a lot. You counted that cost. But I think for this particular guy, what he's saying is, is it's time to cut the apron strings. And what I mean by that is this, just, and I think it comes out in a story. One time I was going to happen to go to our men's retreat here through Cornerstone and I was flying in. I'd been speaking at a thing at Indiana and so I fly in, but I fly in up north to, to where we were going to be meeting and this one guy said, hey, my parents will pick you up. And so I was like, cool, they're going to take me all the way. He's like, yeah, they really want to take you the whole way. Well, he didn't tell me why they wanted me to take it the whole way. 
When I got in the car, they suddenly wanted to talk about their son because their son had just announced to everybody that he wanted to become a missionary in Turkey and then even moving into Iraq. And mama and daddy were not happy. And they had me cornered for two and a half hours. <laughs> what kind of church? And I'm just like absorbing it. And there were tears and frustration. And if you've ever been in that spot before where you don't know what to do, I'm just sitting there praying, Lord, you better be good here because I don't even know what to say. I got a crying mom. I got an angry dad. I've got another hour to be with this family. Lord, show up. Holy Spirit, you know, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly. And oh, I was just like, what am I going to do? And suddenly something just came to my mind. They finished and it was kind of quiet. And I said, when you raised your son, what did you raise him to be? I said, we wanted him to be a passionate follower of Jesus, do anything that Jesus would do. There's going on and I go, well, good job. Way to go. You did it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, like, you raised your son and he's doing what you asked him to do. I mean, part of me wanted to say, pull over the thing, man. Let's just thank the Lord for what God has just done here. I didn't because I still didn't know if they were going to like kill me on the side of the road at this point. <laughs> but they did it. He counted the cost and the apron strings were cut. Now, in that particular moment, I think this is why Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow is supposed to look back. It's a, it's a statement. It's an older statement from a guy that lived in 700 BC, a, a guy named Hesiod. That, but with him, it's just this idea, you can't be looking back anymore. You, it's forward. Don't look back into family. Don't care what they're saying. Follow me. I get that you will lose potentially your relational stability, your belonging. I get that you, there's this idea of family kind of conveys upon this, this idea of who am I? But I think in this, he's starting to talk about physical versus even spiritual family, right? Later on in Matthew 12, they're going to come to him and say, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are here. And he's going to go, who are my mother and brothers? If I would have done that, my mom would have smacked me. <laughs> but he's Jesus. But then he says this statement. My mother and brothers are who? The ones who do the will of God. See, I think even inside of family, we keep searching for this thing in which family is going to finally be this place in which I find ultimate belonging and ultimate acceptance and everything is going to be great. But I would say, if you kind of go back to it, we're trying to make physical family be something that we're never going to experience until we experience that forever family that God has in store for us. See, what's crazy to me is all of you in here that are followers of Jesus, you are the most important people in the world. You're my family. Now, some of you may not want me, but here I am. <laughs> family. Jesus says, I won't settle to be the second love behind your family. I won't settle to be the second love behind your treasure. I won't settle to be the second love behind your home. And I'm not going to allow you to settle for settling when I am offering you so much more than what this temporal life has to offer. Now, what's so fascinating about that guy that I'm telling you that was going to the mission field, he ended up not even going. See, sometimes I think God takes us down those paths just to find out for ourselves. He knows what we're going to do. Will you? 
Will you give up your home? Will you give up family? Will you give up treasure? Am I your first love? And that's what he was doing with these people. Let me finish this way. Earlier on, I started talking about you, those of you that, that maybe don't know Jesus. You might be sitting there going, well then, I'm out. But I'm saying to you, don't go, don't go. With for first considering not only the cost, but the reward. Later we're going to learn Jesus, he's going to talk about a treasure in a field and a pearl of great price. He's going to talk about him as the one that is life. And even when he stood amongst those in John 6, there's this group of people, a crowd that's all around him. And I, man, if I had a crowd right now, I would be like, okay, I got to figure out how to convince them to follow Jesus. And the essence of his sermon is, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in the kingdom. And these boys come up to him afterwards and they're like, dude, little radical message, isn't it? Everybody's walking away. And then he says to them, are you going to go? And they say this statement, where should we go? You have the words of life. To follow Jesus, there is a cost, but let me tell you this. In Jesus, there is not just temporal life. There is life eternal. But we must bend the knee to the king that defeated the curse. I think there's others of you in here that probably are like me also, as you failed and you're just like, man, I've screwed up enough. I'm just going to kind of sit back and coast through it, and I'm just glad I said a prayer. Well, first of all, that's ridiculous. But second of all, why would you when Jesus is offering so much more? I say that because later we're going to hear about Matthew, right, or Peter. And this is what I mean. I, I love Peter. Peter, at the very end, kind of of Matthew, or Matthew, where we find him is, is Jesus is about ready to be crucified. And he's kind of standing back at a distance, right? And first a little slave girl, then a little slave girl. And then it says a crowd walks up to him and asks him, hey, aren't you the guy that was chilling with Jesus? He's like, no, I'm not. He even calls down curses. Ah! And Jesus had promised him, when the, when the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Now, again, if you've ever felt that way like a failure before, man, you're just like, all right, I stink. In fact, by the time we get to John 21, he looks at all the people in John 21, 3, and he's like, hey, fellas, we blew it. John, you were pretty good. You don't have to come. You kind of turned out well. But the rest of us, we blew it. Let's just go back to fishing. Let's just go back to who we were. And along comes Jesus. I love this. They're out there fishing, and suddenly they look, and they're like, hey, you know, woof, I think Jesus is on the shore. And Jesus is sitting there cooking up some fish, which, man, if I were them, I'd have been like, no, could you do more cow? I'm more into steak than fish. But here he is, and they've got the fish, and they come in, they eat with him, and then all of a sudden Jesus pulls Peter aside. Now, if he would have dealt with Peter like sometimes I do my parenting, I would have been, what were you thinking? <laughs> Honestly, what were you thinking? Really? What was going through your mind? I don't know. No, I don't know. It's not good enough. What does Jesus do? I love his statement. Do you love me? Peter? Am I a first or a second love? I'm just asking you. 
do you love me? Peter says, yeah, you know, I, I love you. Jesus, you know, feed my sheep or lambs. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Are you right now settling for settling? Peter, I didn't, I didn't ask you to go fish for fish. I asked you to go fish for men. Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. All right, feed my people. Third time, and Peter knew exactly what was going on now. Do you love me? I love Peter's statement, man. You know, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep, and I love this. Let's go, Peter. Follow me. The worst thing Christians can do is to beat themselves up and in entering into an awkward form of Christian mediocrity. When Jesus is offering forgiveness, Jesus is offering us to come to him and to restore again and renew that relationship and to unleash us to be the people God intends us to be. In other words, don't settle for the mediocrity of sitting back just because you failed when Jesus is offering you what he's been offering you from the moment you bent the knee is forgiveness in his son, restoration to renewness, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the power to do things exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can even ask or even think at the time. Why settle for that when Jesus is offering so much more? Don't settle for settling. Walk through the path that Jesus has called you to. And today, if that's you, oh, you don't have to settle for settling. My hope for Cornerstone, as we walk and continue to be disciples for Jesus, is that this church again and again and again will renew our love and our passion for Jesus. Because see, I think in all of this, and let me just put that slide up there. I think sometimes, yeah, I do long for a forever home. I long for a forever treasure. I long for a forever family. But none of those things are possible without longing for a forever king. And Jesus is king. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, I'm going to close this down, actually, because we're late. We're going to sing. If you want to stick around and sing, if you don't want you can go ahead and come out. But I'm going to close this down. When you're done playing, you can, you can just say goodbye to everybody. Is that all right? But I'd like everybody to stand up. I don't know the different things God's going to ask you to count the cost on. On a personal level, I've had to really wrestle with family. I don't know if I've ever told you before, but man, my parents, great parents, loved them to death. It was so great. But I think in many ways it was hard for me to cut the strings even back into my parents. And even as I look around at my kiddos, man, I've realized, do I love them more than I love Jesus? My wife, that's what the Spirit of God's been doing in my heart as I've been wrestling through this text. 
I would encourage you this week to allow the Lord to just sift through your own heart. It may not be one of these three, but no, don't just come to the point where you acknowledge that this is one thing that you've realized that you love more than Jesus. But do what C.S. Lewis tells you. Is that saying something about something greater that's to come? Think through scripture. What is the greater thing that I'm longing for that only comes in the person of Jesus? And then get your eyes off of all those things and just focus on the greatness of Jesus and what he has to offer you. We don't have to find our solution here. We have found our solution in the person of Jesus. Go to him this week. And you will not find a Jesus that is upset at you and angry with you and treating you like I treat, sounds like my children. He will ask you, I think, the same question, do you love me? So in the name of the Father, who loves us? And in the name of the Son, who loves us? And in the name of the Spirit, who loves us? For those of us in this room that are followers of Jesus Christ, may you exit this room as ones loved by our triune God. And all God's people said, God bless you.